Welcome to the Swan Signal Podcast, a production of Swan Bitcoin, the best way to buy Bitcoin at swanbitcoin.com. I'm Brady, head of education at Swan. Every week, I host a conversation with Bitcoiners, along with our founder, Corey Clipston, and sometimes our co-founder, Jan Pritzker, joins us. We broadcast these live on the Swan Twitter account. We call these sessions Swan Signal Live, a group of Bitcoiners hanging out and talking about the latest Bitcoin and macroeconomic news and musing about Bitcoin's future. This week, Jan Pritzker and I were joined by Elizabeth Prefontaine, founder of research and consulting firm Octonomics, based in uh, Montreal, and Stephanie Vonjan. Austrian economist and lecturer on economics at FOM University in Munich. Be sure to follow at SwanBitcoin on Twitter so you can tune in live whenever you are able. But if you can't do it live, you'll be able to catch all the Swan Signal live conversations recorded here as audio on this podcast feed. I'm really glad you found your way here today. I hope you enjoyed the episode. All right, we are live. Welcome back to Swan Signal Live. Really excited this week to be joined by two very special guests. Stephanie Vonjan. Is that how you say your name, Stephanie? I should have checked before we started. Stephanie Vonjan. Vonjan. I mean, it's kind Von of... Yeah. But it's okay. It's good. Gotcha. Okay. And, and Elizabeth Prefontaine. Um, both are um, experts in macroeconomics uh, and now in Bitcoin. Um, and uh, Elizabeth has a firm in Quebec, Montreal. Um, she is the founder of Octonomics. It's an independent research and counsel, uh, sorry, consulting firm dedicated to financial technologies. Over 25 years of experience, uh, she says that she's among the few who can claim to have traded both physical coupon bonds and Bitcoin. <laughs> um, and she founded Octonomics in 2017, monitors all aspects of Bitcoin, uh, for clients like Hydro Quebec, Thrive Wealth, BitFarms, Northland Wealth Management. And Stephanie is an economist and Bitcoin consultant. Uh, she studies the current financial system and its alternative Bitcoin. She's a strong advocate for freedom in all aspects. Uh, she's also a professor in economics. So welcome both to the show. Hi. Um, okay, well, let's start with a brief background. Obviously, I gave a quick bio, but I'd like to hear a little bit more in depth about how both of you discovered Bitcoin, what inspires you to, as Stephanie has put it in her bio, to spread the truth about Bitcoin. Uh, Stephanie, let's go ahead and start with you. All right. So for me, my whole like journey going beyond the mainstream narrative started around three years ago, where I realized that everything was actually different than what it seemed. So this is also when I went into Bitcoin and then I went into Austrian economics and Austrian economics um, really gave me a totally new perspective and uh, a totally different view on the monetary system and on economics in general and uh, very different to what I learned in, at university. And so I uh, more and more like got pieces together and realized that the system that we have is not for the benefit of the people, but it is a super massive control system and it serves the super rich. And um, yeah, I'm just going more and more in depth on this. I'm amazed how, how extraordinary big the system is um, and how well it functions to really keep the people down. 
And uh, we have to change this. I want to empower the people again that they have their own financial system, which is like Bitcoin, that they know how to use it and that they know that there's a solution to that. And yeah, I want to inform the people on the truth, how the financial system really works, and then give them an, an alternative, which is Bitcoin. And this is why I really want to um, bring out educational material on the financial system as well as Bitcoin. Excellent. And Elizabeth, how did you get into this brave new world of Bitcoin? Well, maybe a bit of a background. Like I, I started working in financial service industry in 1994. That was before internet was even a, a thing. You know, I was uh, at, at, the, at the very beginning. And, and a few years later, we, I was part of a team who tried to launch the first virtual bank in the world. It was a super cool, glossy website, but there was no back-end infrastructure. Like it, it, uh, you've never heard about it because it was, it was a failure. But I remember at the time it was very dynamic. It was cool. Like people could, could try stuff, like make smart mistakes, color outside the lines. Like it really felt like a, a, a innovative, uh, innovative period. Um, and then uh, I uh, spent part of my career in uh, capital markets, so derivatives and bonds. And after that, in, the, in the investment management uh, and I, um, I've tried to launch, uh, I saw an opportunity in the market. I tried to launch a FinTech, but I was never able to build it because the data, uh, is, is not available to certain players and the certain players to whom the data is not available is those that would want to put transparency, accountability, and all those things that the regulator and banker are not really interest, interested in, uh, in having. So yeah. I discovered very quickly that there's permissionless permissionless information innovation is no such thing like you have to ask permission to build and and when you have that well there's of course like anything disruptive will be weeded out and only the the business models that are inconsequential will be allowed allowed, allowed through and i that with that experience gave me is uh, another understanding of the how the incentives are, are skewed against the people, and the, the and I said like I've seen the, the 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 relationships of how this is all holding together in a very different way. At the same time, as uh, someone introduced me to Bitcoin, and it reminded me of that that approach in 1994 with the virtual banking. But the difference was that there was not a glossy website with no back end. It was almost all back end. And I said, this is ugly. I don't understand it, but I see something that works. Yeah. And, and, and for me, it was, it was I said, okay, hold on. You're, you're essentially telling me a finance professional, like I've done all the, the traditional curriculum, that my entire world has been disrupted over there and that I'm completely useless in that system great i want to know everything about it like it's, i was absolutely fascinated like you've been able to disrupt like 20 almost 25 years of my life and it was it was there so that's that's how i uh, first uh, uh put my eyes on on, on bitcoin it's one of the things that i love about bitcoin is that there's no glossy website <laughs> um, <laughs> it's just it's organic and from the ground up uh started by a bunch of internet nerds technology nerds and uh cryptographers and, you know, slowly it's incentivized uh, the creation of this, uh, you know, much more usable system than it was just five, six, seven years ago uh, with layers of, of usability being built by people like Jan, for instance. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I actually think like the ugliness of Bitcoin is almost like a filter, right? Because, you know, I grew up on the internet when it just rolled out. I got my first internet connection in 93, which coincided with the birth of the web. And, you know, the internet was a, a horrible user experience at that point. It was all geeks and nerds and tinkers and the websites looked horrible and, you know, unfinished. 
And it was those people that were early to that scene were drawn to it because it was that way, right? It was very interesting. It was very rapidly developing. And those of us who saw it at that point, you know, some people dismissed it and some people said, wow, there's something really interesting here and, and something that's really changing. And to see that progress, right? And I, I really believe it's the same thing with Bitcoin. A lot of us, you know, who first saw it, I first saw it in 2011. I, I didn't understand what it was. And I totally dismissed it because it looked so horrible. And the, the exchanges at the time, like Mt. Gox, looked like complete hacks put together by God knows who. So, you know, it was that kind of stuff where it looked very, very shady. And, and a lot of people um, are put off by that. But I think it takes some amount of research and understanding to dig beyond that ugliness and say, oh, this is actually very disruptive. And some of the greatest minds in the, you know, in the tech space and the finance space and you know, um, from all over the world are, are working on this thing. Why are they doing that? Um, and I think the people who ask those questions are, are going to be rewarded. Yeah, rewarded for their conviction uh, in, a, in a time <laughs> when it certainly looked like uh, Bitcoin was not going to go anywhere. Um, all right, well, I'd like to spend a little time, and we are in a very strange time right now, and I'd like to spend a little bit of time uh, focused on discussing our macroeconomic situation. Um, so, you know, the United States is, you know, right now in the monetary policy, you know, path that it's choosing to take, uh, remaining committed to this, this Keynesian path that we set out upon in, in 1971 when Nixon formally took us off the USD's cold standard and just a few years before that, I think it was 1965, Milton Friedman famous, famously said, uh, we're all Keynesians now, which was very prophetic. Uh, so is there, at this point, any other choice that the U.S. government could take? Uh, because we are so far down this path. And where do you see monetary policy going uh, in the next couple of years? And Elizabeth, we'll start with you on this one. Well, it's a it's 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 a it's a big it's a big question, and I say I don't think that it's going to fundamentally change uh, overnight. I think we are entrenched, all intertwined into this this debt based uh, e economy, and it needs and for that system to function, it needs it needs growth. Uh, and if if we go back in time, um, pre previous crises have always been. It looks to me that previous crises have always been addressed the same way by by printing more debt or by uh, inflating another bubble. If we go back to 1998, it was uh, the hedge fund long-term capital management, and then it was the tech bubble, and then it was the, great, the, the financial crisis of 2008, 2009, and now this, which is completely uh, uncharted, uncharted territory. So uh, I, I, what I observe is that central banks have, have thrown everything they could at it. They've, they've literally already thrown everything they could at it. Like the, the, the what, what's the next step for the Fed to buy stocks, right? Like, uh, who, wh why should stocks command any any risk premium if if so? Who's who's bearing the risk? And I think that um, we have not. Um, we, I, I think that with all these market manipulation, we've lost something extremely important, and it's the price signal. Like I'm not, I'm not able to look at the market and, and, and make sense of it other than it's driven by monetary policy. So when you lose the, the price signal, you lose information about the individual company, you lose information about the sector, you look information about, about a, a, a whole lot of things. And, and another effect is that people are disincentivized uh, in savings. So when you're disincentivized, you're penalized for being prudent with your money. So when you're penalized for being prudent with your money, well, you're not going to have a rainy fund. 
and the rainy fund can serve to pick up failed company when they're when things go sour and people with capital can do that if there's if it's always if it's always uh, the bailout um it, it rewards the wrong incentives so i think the keynesian monetary system incentivized the wrong uh, the wrong um uh, in, in incentives and i think that the usd we're seeing it usd in a, like is is gaining value against all assets uh, so and and that has a ripple ripple effect into many other layers that i'm going to get into uh, later during this call but i think this has a a, a big um, a, a big challenge we're not in the stimulus part of the easing yet I think we are in the fixing the plumbing, like uh, pu putting some patches where the water's leaking. I don't think we are in the, the stimulus uh, stimulus yet. And I don't think that assets have been repriced. And I don't think all, uh, unfortunately, I, I know I will sound depressing, but what I'm seeing is I think that there's a lot of people who have lost their jobs that just don't know it yet. Wow, yeah, it's it's hard not to be uh, depressed. It's hard not to sound depressing right now. Every conversation that I've been having about Bitcoin lately has, you know, resulted in after about half an hour of very depressing talk. Saying, how, "Okay, how can we turn this back to to the bright side a little bit?" And we're trying to find something. Well, the bright side. The bright side is if they really want the if they really want to have a, a, a thriving economy and they really want people, to, entrepreneurs, to and innovators. Well, this, the, the, the bright side is deregulate because mm -hmm. they will go two paths. They will go total central planning and price controls, and we all know where this goes. Or you deregulate, you let people build, you let people figure out things, you let people be creative, and it will be also uh, very good uh, emotionally speaking because there's nothing worse than being in a bad situation and being removed from um, the, the, the possibility to to do something about it, right? To feel yeah. useless, to feel useless, disempowered, like being trapped in a pod and not, not being able to put your brain, best brains and efforts and roll up your sleeves and do stuff like that. People will want to help. People want to get, get involved and engage. And that's not through bureaucratic administrative regulatory processes. Oh, that's why. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. This, this uh, fiat age is really very surreptitiously or like, uh, you know, in the background, it's hard to see happening, but really robbing people of their productivity and time. And we don't really notice that, but over decades, it results in us not being rewarded for our productivity uh, to the extent that we deserve uh, to our, um, you know, ideas are not being rewarded in, in the right ways. There's lots of legacy ideas that should have been washed out, but have been kept afloat. And that's really keeping a lot of, uh, you know, good ideas, entrepreneurial ideas from, from uh, being able to compete. So yeah, I completely agree with all that. Uh, let's let's go over to Stephanie. Uh, where do you think monetary policy is going? And you know, like, do we have any other choice at this point? Yeah. So um, I would like to go one step backward and explain a little bit uh, the Keynesian system, why it's like completely faulty in its like base. So uh, I had to actually teach this at university just recently, and then I went really deep into like where is the logic missing and uh, where are the false assumptions. So the Keynesian theory comprises that when you have higher government expenditure, then this would lead to a higher GDP. 
But in this formula, they are not considering where the money comes from for this government expenditure. And it essentially comes from taxes or from money printing, which is, it is first extracted from the economy and then inserted again. And of course, only a portion is inserted. So it doesn't make sense at all that this would somehow like stimulate, you know, it's actually extracted. And it's really funny because when you look in the theory itself, it says government expenditures would be independent of taxes or anything. So it's really faulty right at the assumptions. So this is the first thing. The other thing is that Keynesian economics treats money as a commodity. They say when we have more transactions, we need more money. But this is not the case. So assume um, we would not expand the monetary base and we have more transactions and um, more to actually exchange the money with to in, into another good, then the money would just become more worth, which is kind of a deflation. So you can buy more with the money and it's no problem at all. So really, when you look at Keynesian ex economics, you realize that it's all kind of fabricated and made up to somehow justify the system that we have now. And essentially, the system... Um, serves those that already have uh, money, have wealth, that can use the leverage to even um, amplify the money. But even more than that, it really serves the central bank and the government. So it's an absolute centralized system um, that serves the, the top. And this, you know, this eco uh, economy um, or economic theory by Keynes kind of like makes a makes a wrapping around it, which says, yeah, it would be good for the people, but in fact, it is actually absolutely disastrous for the people. And, you know, it's um, when I learned this at university, I was not told, yeah, here's a false assumption. I was just told, yeah, <laughs> this is how it is. This is the truth. And I remember me thinking, okay, I somehow don't understand this. I don't <laughs> get the logic, but there were probably really smart people and they know their stuff. Yeah. <laughs> but I just tried the exam and then I learned it and then that's it. And I, it always felt fishy for me. I do remember that. Uh, but I didn't have the confidence to really think that it's a complete lie, that it's like fully false of, of the assumptions and the logic. And yeah, now going through this, I, I am really impressed how they could like spread this over the whole world and all the <laughs> universities, that this is how it would work, you know. And yeah, this is also why, why Austrian economics are so important. And this is not taught at universities. So yeah. maybe this a little bit as a background. And um, yeah, do we have a, a, another alternative? Of course we have. Yeah, we have Bitcoin, fortunately. It can really save us to shift to another system, to a parallel universe where we can build up our own structures and where not everything is kind of flowing to the centralized organizations that are kind of just benefiting with the system and just, um, yeah, extracting money from the middle class and the lower class from many angles. So, um, yeah, we already have the solution, which is Bitcoin. And I don't, I really don't see that we will find a solution from the governments because they want to keep in power. You know, it's a conflict of interest. And even when they would say, okay, we now have a gold standard. We know that during Bretton Woods, we had a gold standard and the Bretton Woods system collapsed because the trust in the Fed of keeping enough gold in reserve than the dollar it printed was dissolved. So people were thinking, okay, they printed more. 
and they did this in the past why shouldn't they do this in the future so I would not trust a central um, gold custody at all. And we already had this in history and it should not repeat again. And this is why we need Bitcoin, which is decentralized, where I can hold the money on my own, where I don't need a custody provider to send my Bitcoin over distance. So we already have everything. But yeah, I think the fiat system will only get worse. They will print more. We will have more inflation. We have like crazy stuff like capital controls, uh, helicopter money and what else? Yeah, that they just cancel out the debt. So these are like things that, that they probably will, will come with, you know. But yeah. more and more people awake and say, okay, we need a change. We need something else. And they come to Bitcoin. Yeah, I think you know, I wanted to comment a little bit on that in that, um, you know, I came from a technical background. I did not have an economics background. So for me, I mean, I understood supply and demand. That was the extent of my economics. And funny enough, I feel like understanding supply and demand is like all you really need for basic economics, right? From that, almost everything else derives. Um, you know, to comment on uh, Elizabeth's uh, ideas around when the banks are stepping in and buying assets, they're distorting prices. This was a very interesting concept to me that I came across actually in Safe's book, where he was talking about why communism failed. And I, I actually come from a communist country. I came from Soviet Russia. I never thought about it that way. I always thought about it like the problem was, you know, they tried to keep a lid on everything. You know, they, they tried to keep, uh, keep in charge of everything. And what he pointed out was the very idea that prices were being distorted was screwing up the information in the market. It's not only just a problem that the central planners can't possibly know everything, but it's also a problem that they are themselves distorting that knowledge by, by affecting the prices. And that's what's happening now here in America. I mean, it, it's been happening and it's happening even worse now. So it's very interesting to see that that's playing out. We're distorting all information. We're making it... Uh, we're making, we're de-risking very risky investments so that companies that should have been, you know, wiped out are still in business. And this is just screwing up the whole market. Um, and, uh, to Stephanie's comments, uh, I totally agree in the sense that, uh, people are used to this system that we live in. They don't question it. And when something fails, right? Like the, the economy's tanking now, well, everybody says, well, look, thank God the central banks are here. Thank God they're able to tr imagine what it would have been like if we didn't have central banks, right? We, they wouldn't have been able to do all these stimulus checks and all this other stuff. And nobody really kind of steps outside of that picture. Very smart people. I mean, I know people who are, you know, educated financial planners, CPAs, you know, folks like that who, who won't step outside of that system. And they really wholeheartedly believe that, thank God we have central banks because they can save our crashing economy. Uh, but it's very hard to see, you know, it's very hard to say, what would it look like if we didn't have that? What would it look like if they didn't even cause this bubble to begin with, right? Uh, that's, that's the question most people aren't asking. I mean, I see people on Twitter asking for more helicopter money and, and more MMT and more of all of that because that's the system, that's the game that they're playing. And within that game, those are the only choices. So it's, it's very sad. I agree, Bitcoin is a new choice, um, but a lot of people aren't seeing it as such. Mm -hmm. Yeah, actually, we would have much more prosperity if we didn't have like central banks. And um, yeah, everyone would be, would be more self-sovereign and we also have, would have less government intervention. Everything would be more decentral, actually. So um, yeah, that's uh, what we actually strive for. And I think this is also a whole paradigm shift so that people need to become more self-confident and trust themselves that they can do and that they can provide valuable services that others will buy. And then you have a just flourishing economy. And I mean, the funny thing is how shall the government or central bank save us with money? It is the people who provide the food and all that stuff. It is us. 
So if you think what is really happening in the economy, then, then it's going back to the people, not some magic money that's just printed out of nothing. And people, many people don't see that. And maybe one thing, um, I also made a tweet on uh, whether growth is needed or what growth and GDP actually means. Because when you have inflation, the GDP increases automatically. So the GDP is like very much related to the inflation, the money circulating. And also, this is, this is also not so much looked at. And yeah, then maybe you have like uh, the nominal and real GDP, and then you can kind of get rid of the inflation. But inflation is actually measured in a way that it's like compared to a consumer basket, which does not include assets. Although there we have the highest inflation. So also this thing is also totally distorted. And yeah, um, Elizabeth, you also really nicely mentioned um, that you have like so much like manipulation in the home market and also interest rate manipulation. And then Kaufman, he made a really nice article which really lined out how this manipulation creates these boom and bust cycles because then companies could get funding that are actually not really providing so much value, that are destroying capital. And this is why we would be in a much more prosperous community if we didn't have these artificial like uh, interest rates, you know, because now we have these kind of zombie companies that are not really providing value that are still surviving. So it's yeah, the zombie, it's the zombie, it's the real zombie apocalypse. <laughs> Elizabeth, do you have something to follow up with? Well, you have, you have companies with billi billions of valuations that are not profitable. Like I'm, I have like trouble uh, getting my getting my head around that. How can you deserve that much uh, that that much valuation, and then you throw in the the share buybacks who and who uh, incentivize uh, again uh, risky reward uh, bad bad behavior? And I'm I'm looking if I, if I zoom out, I'm looking at at uh, at the market, um, and I see some plumbing, some some pokes everywhere, and, and I'm just gonna name, name a few. Uh, recently, we've seen the uh, gold, the physical gold. Uh, I think there's not enough physical gold around. Like it's uh, you can't you can't buy it, and I think there's even some products who failed uh, failed on the delivery. So essentially, gold gold failed. Uh, you have the uh, oil future, the May the May contract for oil that went into uh, negative. You needed to pay someone to take uh, to take your delivery. Uh, and um, and and that that really means like there's a, a discrepancy in between production users and speculators. Uh, so that's another another whoop. <laughs> something something's not something's not exactly working right. And we'll see what happens with the June contract because if planes are st if 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 the, the 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 if the lockdown is not ended, like this is not going to improve. Um, but these are not new new hiccups or new red flags. If you go back previously, prior to Corona, we already had like a liquidity challenge in the in the traditional banking system with the repo market, who needed the constant liquidity liquidity injection, and and now you see uh, regulated products that are busting, like ETNs. There was an oil ETN, no, no, not working out, and then the the, the volatility product volatility product also like they there's all these. Uh, uh, things that that flash that there are things not properly uh, working out. 
and you look at the, there's a lot of negative things. Like I mentioned, the negative, uh, the, the negative, you, you need to pay to offload the oil. oil. Um, uh, but there's also the swap spreads that are negative. Uh, the, 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 the front end of the curve in, the, in France uh, and Belgium, Denmark, all the way to 10 years, Ireland, Netherlands, which uh, Germany, is, uh, the entire curve is negative, even though rates uh, uh, went back up since the, the beginning of March, they're still dealing with negative interest rates. And, and that's a, a, very, uh, a very odd concept where you essentially pay the government to receive, you, you pay the borrower to receive less money. Like there's, if I, if I dumb it down to the simplest way I can explain, there is nobody other than my close relatives or, or certain of my close relatives that I would lend at zero. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. And, and then I'm going to, I'm going to lend up minus something. I'm going to, I'm going to pay someone to borrow like something, something just, just doesn't, doesn't, doesn't make sense to me. And I wouldn't want to be working in a bank treasury right now. Like the moves in the, on the bonds, uh, the moves on the spreads, uh, like it must be uh, extremely difficult in the bank treasury and also thinking about their, their mortgage books. Like think, think of the mortgage book. Like how do you like you've got people that go no, no jobs? It's a, not one industry. Most industries, people no job. How do you pay the rent? How do you pay the mortgage? All all at once. And then how do you assess the value of the collateral? D don't know. And then they're supposed to be lending. So so uh, it it I I, I uh, think uh, the uh, commercial banks must be uh, it must be uh, it must not be fun. <laughs> not not good times uh for the legacy system perhaps um well these monetary policy policy decisions that we've been talking about you know will be made by the federal reserve and the u.s government uh since it is the world reserve currency they'll ripple out around the world so how will the u.s's monetary policy affect the global economic and geopolitical landscape in this particular environment stephanie you want to start off mm -hmm. yeah yeah, so first we may look at the euro dollar system. So we know that in the that international trade is mostly done in US dollar and many other um, countries actually packed their currency to the US dollar. And also um, US dollar is just used in other countries. Um, so for example, I went to Myanmar and I took a very nice US dollar with me and with that I could get the currency. So they're actually like very much uh, dependent or actually very much intertwined with the US dollar. So the US dollar is a global um, world reserve uh, currency, which is why there is dem a demand on the US dollar. And so uh, when we have an inflating US dollar, this of course affects everyone who is interacting with the US dollar for international trade or where the currency is packed to. So this is why, um, well, there was a tweet um, on Twitter actually who says that um, inflation is exported to other countries. And this is exactly how you can think on that. So if the US dollar inflates, then um, these other currencies that are packed to it or that do the international trade that are also affected with that. And on top of that, if you would not inflate your own currency, then you are not competitive or not, not balanced um, with the US dollar. 
So um, we had this, for example, the Swiss franc was like appreciating too, appreciating too much. So it was too valuable. So they somehow had to like reduce their value to be able to export well. And, you know, all these like uh, differences in value of these different currencies affect trade. And so if the U.S. dollar just um, inflates, then the people from the U.S cannot so easily buy your goods that are in this different currency because their US dollars less worth. So this is why there's like kind of a push to the whole world to go with this inflation as well. So this is what we're seeing. We have, we will have a worldwide inflation done. The, with the Euro dollar also, there's, there's another component that has to do with uh, if, if, if the, um, if the I'm, I'm going to make an example if the usd in a french bank so it's a usd deposit held in a, in a french bank uh if they do fractional reserve banking and they do they do it wrong the fed is not going to come and save them right so there there needs to be flowing flowing usd for, for for that for that to work so that's something something uh worth worth more attention uh in terms of global economic and geopolitical landscape there's there's one thing that drew that uh, that i drew my attention on or that attracted my interest uh is um emerging market bonds that are priced in us lots of these countries are uh oral producer or exporter uh and um how do you repay a us denominated debt if you're not selling your product or if you'd say so, I think that's there's something uh, to to look there, and also loans in a certain country of Africa. Uh, say uh, how is it priced, and uh, and uh, who is the lender? Is China the lender, uh, and against what type of collateral? Uh, who would benefit from their credit? I was looking at the South African rand and the the currency versus the U.S. Like the swings, the swings are are massive. And uh, depending on what, what the individual country are producing versus the collateral and asset, uh, I think that's um, non-negligible. Uh, I think there's something maybe going going on going on there with the financing of the infrastructure. Uh, I'll admit it, it, it bothers me. <laughs> it's, um, it's, so do you think there's a world where there's just going to be a lot more defaults on U.S. debt and then that will further basically inflate the dollar with all this printing they're doing? They're really doing the printing in order to sort of counter the deflationary effects of, you know, the production's down, right? Nobody's working. Um, theoretically, they're trying to stimulate demand with that. But if, you know, if everybody's defaulting and all these dollars are swimming around in the system, that could really lead to a lot more inflation than is expected, right? I'm not yet clear on the inflation and deflation. Okay, I think we'll go. We'll first go through a period of of deflation where mm -hmm. prices go down, uh, and then inflation is always a monetary a monetary phenomenon. Uh, I, I but but I I think that uh, asset price will fall off. Why I was talking about that is because more of a other regions in the world may have financed these loans with collateral on the infrastructures and for strategic assets. They, they could be viewed as strategic assets. 
So on one hand, you have a you have a lender where you're supposed to repay in in USD. So what is the IMF going to do? What what is the IMF going to do about it? And on the other hand, you may have a China, a country uh, with a strategic uh, collateral on on certain assets where the countries would be defaulting on the debt. Hmm. I just looked up uh, some numbers relating to that. So forty percent of the world debt is actually in US dollar. So this is quite a big portion. And yeah, I also see this as a great issue. And yeah, so we will have this run um, that the people are demanding the US dollar to pay back their debt. This is the deflationary scenario. And on the other side, we have so much more printing of money, which is the inflationary scenario. And it will be very interesting. Um, I mean, we had, a, we had a period during the crisis where we just had this deflationary scenario. Now there's more and more printed, so which like could go again to the inflationary scenario. So it will be very interesting how this will figure out um, or how this will trickle down um, in the next month because we have, you know, these two tendencies. So uh, maybe this, and one thing that I wanted to say as well um, that I missed before. So... Uh, Iran actually wanted to denominate um, its, its oil already in yuan, so in another currency, but then they were faced with so much sa sanctions. So why is this whole international trade so much focused on the US dollar? It's actually also because of the sanctions and economic warfare, but it all also has historical reasons. It came from the Bretton Woods system, where all the other currencies were packed to the US dollar. But this is kind of where we're in. So all um, the system is kind of held up with, with kind of violence and with economic warfare and sanctions. So this is also something where we can look up and where what we can have, where, what we can keep in mind to know why this is the case, which I truly think is very interesting. So I've been wondering about this, and this is, uh, and I know a lot of other Bitcoiners have too, who don't understand exactly how this is going to play out, but how should we think about the balance between deflationary pressures from job losses and kind of in the immediate future, as we just discussed a little bit, and then the inflationary pressure by the central banks coming in over time? Like, what are the, what's the timeline we should be looking at and how does that all play out? Uh, Elizabeth, you want to take this one? Well, infl inflation has to do with two variations of curve, the variation of demand and the variation of supply. Right, so it is the it is the, the the effect of those of those two things. I think we're going to see uh, asset price deflation, uh, which is not good for the for the for the for the legacy system. They need to reflate. They need, they need to reflate. That's the big because it's debt based. So that's that's not good. That's not good for that. Uh, then for 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 for, for people uh, who have uh, they it. I think there will be a cleavage between people who have jobs and those who don't, and and who has money to spend. I'd say that uh, uh, I, I don't think that there's a lot of people uh, that are looking forward to going back and shopping for things they don't need. So right, <laughs> I, I think uh, we've did uh, um, refocusing the priorities. Uh, refocusing the priorities and what's essential and what's needed, and people—I think people will hoard money. They will, they will, they will save, even though they will be disincentivized to save because of uh, wealth tax, negative interest rate, price appreciation of of what we need. I'm I'm going to try an attempt. I think that 
the, the bankruptcies have not been seen yet. We've seen the impact in the stock market. We've seen the impact in the population and the lockdown. I don't see, I don't think that the economic massacre, like that this is mm -hmm. the economic ravage has been fully, fully understood. I don't think those who have to go under have gone under. I think that there will be the, the, the bankruptcies are, are to come and the, the businesses that will not be able to, to reopen. And it's, and it's, it's, it's really, it's really, it's art wrenching. And as long as they keep it closed, the, 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 the worse, the worse it's, it, the worse it's going to get. So in terms of, and then after that, you have fewer, fewer producers or fewer distributors, and then maybe there's stuff that's going to start, uh, start missing. But then you have, uh, they, you can think of um, inflation in, a, in another way is even if I wanted to pay a million, a million dollars for toilet paper, if there's none, I'm not saying that there's a shortage, but I'm, I'm trying to, to demonstrate that, if there's if there's stuff that don't come for X reason, it could be uh, inflation another way. Inflation with because there's there's no offer, and I've, and I and I don't know yet how it will all unfold. Um, but but I, but I think that um, it's not fully it's not fully priced priced in, and it is an opportunity for people to reinvent themselves. Uh, it's just that uh, I'm thinking of my legacy system finance folks, uh, they will realize that they don't have lots of skills, right? The, the, the skills of the new world, they are, the skills of the future are very different from, from what they're expecting. They're still in the previous paradigm. The entrepreneurs will roll up their sleeves and will will we'll make it happen. They'll, they'll figure out something, should regulation and should um, the context permit it. Right, right, right. Stephanie, do you have some thoughts on this? Yeah, so um, I think we're right now still in this deflationary scenario overall, where the people are selling assets or selling what they have in order to pay back their debt. And I think this will continue on for a while, um, but we already have the first defaults, and this will increase tremendously in the next month. And then I also expect that we have bank defaults, and then we need massive bank bailouts um, like really absolutely massive, uh, like most banks will probably need to be bailed out. And this is when I expect inflation to really kick in. Jan, did you have some thoughts you wanted to share? Uh, no, I was just thinking, you know, I was thinking through your comments and um, observing my own behaviors. Obviously, I still have a job and I'm lucky enough to have, you know, some assets. Um, not going to pretend that I'm a poor person. Uh, you know, I, I'm still spending, right? Like I, we're bored in our house and we're ordering stuff and like making our garden better and like ordering stuff off of Amazon. Of course, Amazon stocks through the roof. Uh, meanwhile, I know that there's poor people who are, who've lost their jobs. Um, so I think it's, what I see is that these pressures, and this is very to very much to Elizabeth's point, they affect different people differently. Um, I think they're going to create more wealth disparity because it's people who have the assets right now who've, who are sitting on cash, you know, they're going to look for to pick things up on the cheap when the market bottoms. And it's the people who are not sitting on cash, uh, meaning like regular people, they're, they're going to be in, in massive trouble. Uh, of course, companies are being bailed out. And this is also very interesting because we have those PPP loans and, and so on. And I know that everybody and their mother is going for these loans, whether they need these loans or not, right? Because it's free money. It's coming from the government and they're all going for these loans. 
Uh, we've heard stories of hedge funds looking for these loans. People who have no business, you know, really <laughs> uh, doing this stuff. They're they're basically using government money uh, to subsidize themselves and um, you know compensating themselves for taking losses that really should have wiped them out because they were bad bad decisions. So in that sense, I'm not entirely sure. Like, when does this deflationary spiral end? Because if they keep you know they keep issuing these loans and they hold over these businesses, right? We are, on one hand, we're saying, okay, we expect lots and lots of defaults. We expect everybody to go out of business. And I generally agree with that. But, you know, if everybody's given enough money, quote unquote, and I put money in quotes because it's not really money, but it's something to hold <laughs> them over for the next three to six months before this thing blows over. And those businesses are actually able to stay in business. Um, you know, my sister has a cell phone shop. Okay, if she's got no customers, but she gets a PPP loan that allows her to stay in business for six months and hold on to her inventory and pay her rents, maybe she reopens in six months and her business doesn't fail. So, you know, that's a possibility. Uh, and it's hard for me to say whether that will play out or not. But I do think the, you know, to kind of summarize my, <laughs> my long rambling thought here is that there, this creates more and more, more wealth inequality because the people who are able to take advantage of the loans, they will do so. The people who got a $1,200 stimulus check, they're going to spend it on food and they're going to be broke, just as broke as they were before. Um, and we're just going to continue having that massive wealth gap that's created by a broken financial system. When I look at the, see, when I look at the, to the, the, the poor people and, and what's happening, I'm, and yeah, I'm connecting weird dots, but I'm seeing like in the US, uh, there was a prevention, you, you couldn't buy seeds. Right? You can, so there were in some places, yeah. There were, but I think it was government ordered. It was not a, a shortage. It was like, this is not an essential good. A seed is not an essential good, which is there's a, there's like a what? There's a bureaucrat somewhere that <laughs> put this flyer yeah. that so that was like. And and then I see a producer with um uh, and and these are all anecdotals I like, gathered, but I see like lots of um. I think it was zucchinis uh, in California, like a big, big pile of food because they don't have the distribution because you're usually distributing to, to restaurants and, mm -hmm. and various places. So it's just like, it's, it's waste. And then yep. I, see, I see planes grounded uh, and, and I see that they're paying, they're paying people to take over oil. And I'm like, and there's people for food banks, like, and, and there's people... Who, who don't have enough to eat. We've got empty planes, free fuel, rotten vegetables, mm -hmm. by seeds, and people, people, <laughs> there's like, yeah, it's absolutely crazy. And it actually is, it's, we are headed towards, if they don't, fix, if they don't reopen this thing, we're headed towards that Soviet scenario because in the Soviet Union, it's not like there were shortages of resources. I mean, there were no shortages. This, the, the, it was lumpy. It was not equally distributed, not correctly distributed because they tried to, you know, completely control everything. And so you had people farming too many potatoes on one side of the country and on the other side of the country, people are starving and they're sending engineers into the fields to plow, you know, to, to, to harvest potatoes instead of engineering. Like that, my dad did that. He was an engineer. He was sent, every engineer was sent to the fields. So like this kind of thing is, um, we're not there yet, but we are developing some of those same symptoms um, which are all symptoms of essentially central planning, right? They're symptoms of central planning. They're symptoms of um, price distortions, prices not being able to ripple through the market correctly, and that information is being lost. And so, you know, and yeah, it's, it's all, of course, the bureaucracy doesn't make it any better. That makes it a lot worse because somebody somewhere is following an order to the letter and saying that seeds are not essential items and then people are starving. I mean, this stuff is, is absurd and I hope people wake up.
soon, sooner rather than later. So Stephanie, what is your, uh, what are your thoughts on, you know, monetary policy and, and our current situation and how it will affect, uh, you know, already existing uh, record levels of wealth inequality? Oh, it will make it uh, even worse. Um, yeah, I mean, if the money is printed and uh, distributed from a centralized entity, then they can decide who gets the money. And this is actually also a very good mean to control the whole economy. They call the, call the structural operations. And then they, yeah, I mean, it's kind of a central planning in a way that is uh, fueled by this whole fiat system. And then those that are doing what the Fed wants gets the money, the others rather not. So here in Germany, we have like kind of packages um, for, for people that ca don't, uh, cannot work right now. And I know from three people, two didn't get anything and one got something. So it's, it's not coming. That's just talking about this. So uh, this is the helicopter money, actually. Um, and yeah, so apparently it's not coming through. And then when you have this helicopter money, you are becoming more dependent on the state. And as I said, and eventually the people produce the food. It's not the state. So we can do all these things by ourselves. And this is the absolute magic that I learned from Austrian economics, that it just solves the free market, solves the coordination problem. And this is the direct antithesis to this uh, central planning, as it was in the Soviet Union, because the central planner does not know all the needs of the market. But if, if everyone is free and, you know, everyone is communicating, everyone has different ideas, then they know what the needs are and the needs will be served. And we had this, for example, with the scuba diving masks for the venti ventilation systems and with the 3D printing, the people have so much creativity. We can, we can change this whole world and lift everyone out of poverty. We can do that, but a central planner like a Federal Reserve cannot do this. So we really have to get rid of the Fed, actually. Um, and I would recommend to do this in a, like, um, that we just switch to a system that is made from us for the people, which is Bitcoin. So, yeah, and uh, what else for modern monetary um, theory? I mean, yeah, what is also coming then is that they will have more capital controls. They're trying to control that even more. They might even go that far to prohibit gold or even Bitcoin. And, uh, yeah, because this is an alternative and thereby it just kind of like takes their uh, their power away. So I'm like very much against that because I'm for freedom and prosperity and peace and happiness for everyone. And this is not served by the Federal Reserve System. And I was just talking about peace. Um, Axel Weber, he was the former president of the Deutsche Bundesbank. He said that central banking was introduced to provide war financing to government. So this whole system is really not for the benefit of the people um, in so many ways. And this is why we just need to change that and it will only get worse. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, okay, let's pivot back to Bitcoin um, here for the last bit of the conversation. Um, so we've talked a lot about monetary instability, uh, macroeconomic instability. What does this mean for the near-term future of Bitcoin. We've been talking on, you know, terms of like decades. Um, 
for this all to play out? Has this, um, the current situation we find ourselves in sort of pulled that future forward? Elizabeth? I think that the scarcity, um, scarcity is not yet fully appreciated in a world where everything is, woohoo, money is printing, growing on trees. Like, well, there's, 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 but as the Fed said, as much as needed, like it's, and it's endless. The capacity is endless. Okay. Like why, why do I need to pay taxes if you can just print money? Like it's just digits in a dit in a database, right? So I think that the, the notion of what's rare, what's scarce, uh, is not fully appreciated by, by lots. Uh, and the notion of pre-markets. Bitcoin is purely offer, offer and demand. And in terms of, uh, in terms of regulation, I, I bet on mathematics way above regulators that are misincentivized and bureaucrats and, uh, and, and that. So, uh, Bitcoin, I'm, I'm, I'm amazed that, gee, I'm, well, I'm not surprised because it's, but, but it's still, it's still, ama- it, it still amazes me that it, it does exactly what it's supposed to do. And, and, and Stephanie, you alluded like they would try to crack down uh, or to ban it. Well, it's, Bitcoin is a, is, is a software. It's, it's a database, right? So what are they trying to ban speech? Like it's it's a it's a communication mechanism. It's not money, but it is valuable because the block space comes into uh, uh, li- li- limited limited fashion. But it allows to do one thing: to sign a message for uh, the network to publish on the, pu- the, the 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 public database. Like I don't know what from what angle they want they will want to crack at it. But if they do attempt to crack at it. And they, because there's two ways. They can say, okay, you go innovators because a country who wouldn't want its people to be free and rich and prosperous is, is, is not good. You want, you want the people to be, to be free, rich, and prosperous. Or, or they decide to go the, go, the, the, the way and, and to ban. And the more they attempt to, to ban, they will not only hurt their own people, they will um, make it more apparent that the, the system they're protecting with the banning is one that is not good for the people. So do, do I expect some turmoil? Absolutely. But in the end, uh, people will see, will, will see through this. Uh, and, uh, and I think also regulation is, uh, they're speaking of both sides of their mouth, meaning that they make their own regulation and they bend their own rules. How fun is that? What a fun game to play. Like you make up some rules and then you bend them. Like I was reading recently that the, the stress testing after post, after great financial crisis, there was Dodd-Frank regulation, the stress testing of the banks. And now, whoop, no, no, it's okay. We're, we don't know more. Like we're in a crisis situation, which is the best stress test. And uh, they, they removed those types of regulation. I have lots of examples where regulators are, are bending their own rules. So they should not attempt to crack down at, 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 at software, database, uh, collectibles. It's just, it's ridiculous. Yeah, uh, Stephanie, uh, what do you think about Bitcoin's near future now that we've got, you know, we're in this situation. What do you think about potential regulations and crackdowns? Uh, maybe I would like to add uh, to Elizabeth's uh, statement on why do we actually need taxes when they can print money? I was asking this question myself as well. And there was also a nice uh, Twitter conversation on that, which actually said that the money, the fiat money becomes some value because you have to pay your taxes in this currency. 
And this really like made me think, wow. Um, so yeah, this is why I think the system was like uh, implemented actually. And um, what I also think now is that the people are now more and more realizing the value of savings because now they need their savings. And then they will think, okay, why, why do I not have savings? Why is this fiat system disincentivizing savings? And then I also might think of alternatives like Bitcoin. Um, and yeah, to this uh, prohibition of Bitcoin, yeah, it's definitely against law. And here in Germany, they are doing so many laws now that are against the fundamental laws. I mean, it's obvious there are people protesting, people signing petitions, and another um, lawyer even went to court and said, yeah, that it's unlawful. And uh, it's just, you know, the, the highest court said, yeah, no, it's fine, you know. So, yeah, we're living in a very twisted system. So I, I definitely think that these things might happen. Um, and I had a quite a long discussion actually with Sven Schneiders on that. Um, because Bitcoin is created as a black money, black market money. So it is, we can use privacy with Wasabi or then even with uh, Lightning. Mm, so this is preserved and we can use it over this time. We don't need a custody provider. So Bitcoin has everything in place, even if it becomes illegal. And when we kind of have to flee the country, we could memorize the seed phrase or somehow get it around um you know so there it, it is really uh, the best black market money we have by far you know i mean you cannot just take a uh, take a bucket of uh, gold with you on the plane so bitcoin is very my values on it of course it will survive and it will also be used and yeah i also see more and more people are waking up and this is what we need so this crisis really um shook the people awake M many are still sleeping but many are really realizing, okay, there's something going on that is not good. And here in Germany, there are so many people, you know, building our, um, organizations and resisting. And that's, that's important. This is what we need. So I don't think that they can push this really far because there are too many people that are resisting. But nevertheless, I just wanted to mention it because it's a card to play. And we just have to keep everything in mind that could happen, you know. Yeah. And, um, oh, sorry. Yeah. I didn't mean to Go ahead and yeah. finish up. A little bit. Uh, um, so going back to the future of Bitcoin. So this is great times for Bitcoin because the competition to Bitcoin, which is like, let's say the fiat, fiat money, is just getting worse and worse. They're printing more and more money. It's um, this whole system cracks more and more. The people are realizing it. So the alternatives are just getting even worse. Um, so yeah, Bitcoin has really great chances on that. And Bitcoin is getting better. Bitcoin is getting more hash power, more people working on it, a whole infrastructure on it, people educating on that. So it's brilliant times for Bitcoin. Amen. That's what we're trying to do here at Swan, our small part to help uh, educate and onboard the next, uh, you know, hopefully 21 million Bitcoiners around the world. That's our goal. Um, Jan, do you have any thoughts about uh, regulations and crackdowns that you'd like to Yeah, share? I just wanted to... Uh, you know, I wanted to show my favorite quote from The Wire by Omar. I don't know if you guys have seen The Wire, but you come for the king, you best not miss, which is a very uh, apt quote that describes Bitcoin. Bitcoin is anti-fragile. I really believe that. I think any kind of crackdown, if it's not final, if it doesn't completely kill Bitcoin dead, it only makes it stronger. Because all it's saying is we tried, we gave it all, we gave it, you know, billions or trillions of dollars worth of resources to try to kill this thing and we couldn't kill it. 
And that just makes this value proposition even stronger. And I 100% agree with Stephanie that Bitcoin is black market money. You know, when people have to escape a country where they have financial oppression, they can't get money out of the bank, uh, the banking system, the ATMs are capital controlled, uh, digital money is capital controlled, you can't carry it, I obviously can't carry gold bars with you, they're going to get stripped from you, then all you have is Bitcoin. And that's what Bitcoin is for. And Bitcoin is very good at defeating capital controls. And if any, company, any country tries to shut that down and fails, well, they're just telling everybody else in the neighboring countries, hey, <laughs> rush out and buy Bitcoin today, because this is the only thing that's going to save your ass when it matters. Um, and as somebody who has come from that kind of regime, I can tell you, you know, we, we faced capital controls, my, my family was uh, allowed to keep $100 per person uh, exchange from Soviet rubles to US dollars because you couldn't own US dollars. It was illegal. US dollars were black market money in the Soviet Union. And Bitcoin is black market money in all countries today that have capital controls. And so anybody who's out there in a, in a country like that, you should absolutely be accumulating Bitcoin, even if it's just a little bit, uh, because that is your ticket out. When the shit hits the fan, you will have to pay somebody a bribe in black market money, and that money will be Bitcoin. Yeah, well said, Jan. Um, so we are here talking about this truth as we see it uh, that we're very confident in at this point. We've spent a lot of time discussing and learning and researching. We see a lot of empirical evidence, both historical and you know, more and more being produced every single day, day by day. And Stephanie kind of started talking about this, but I wanted to dive in a little bit more. How do we wake people up to the truth, like in mass? Like we've been, you know, outside of our echo chamber that we've been discussing in for a long time. Maybe another way to put it is how do your students, Stephanie, and your clients, Elizabeth, react when you share these ideas with them? I, I think I think Bitcoin needs to be to become super simple. It needs to become super simple. Uh, I, I view it as a you you. Uh, Jan and Stephanie have mentioned one one use case, which is more of a, on the humanitarian uh, humanitarian use use case, but it can be uh, a, it's it's a protocol for value transfer over the internet, right? Just like internet, what what could you like? In, in January 1993 was very difficult to use. The first email was difficult to use. Like it's not it's super user friendly. It needs to be. Uh, design, designing of simplicity, and I think how I, I, I think how we um, get more people involved is to offer services that are paid only in Bitcoin. And what, what, what else could I, uh, what else could I use that's not going to eat up ten uh, percent, uh, seven to ten percent fees like PayPal, and that's that I'm going to have those restrictions, and that certain individuals uh, say, are, are are prevented and. Or for uh, small payments, I, I think um, services sold, goods and services sold in Bitcoin, uh, if it's good enough, could uh, uh, force people to uh, well, and not not force, but incentivize because it's always it's always opt in, incentivize people to uh, to to onboard. But it needs to become much more much more simpler. And I think there is great uh, progress progress this way. Stephanie. I also agree totally to that. Um, so when I'm teaching my students the financial system and why Bitcoin has value, I'm always first explaining the financial system and they kind of get within 15 to maybe 30 minutes how the system works and why, or like at least the basics and why it's not for good for the people. 
And you know, if you got this, then it's super easy to understand the value of Bitcoin. Then it's mostly only like 15 minutes and then I know, okay, yeah, we have scarcity here and this is why Bitcoin is valuable. I mean, of course, when you go digging deeper and deeper, it's like you can spend years on that. But yeah, I think the most important thing is to understand the financial system, how it really works and not what we're told to. And I think here we already have the masses. I mean, the masses don't trust the banks anymore. They, they don't think that their pension funds are secure. So we have that already. And now we already have the like, big pain for many people that cannot pay their debt and that no, don't know how to like, survive in the next month. And this also maybe like, brings the people more to think on, yeah, why am I in this situation? But actually, now we don't only have the poor people, because we also have the middle class that is affected. Um, uh, a friend of my mom um, told her that she bought two flats and her house was, is a security. And now she cannot pay the debt back. And so she has kind of these assets, but it now goes to the direction that she loses everything because her, her house was a security and the flats as well. And now she doesn't have income, so she cannot pay it off. So what we see now is that the middle class is very much affected by this whole thing, or many from the middle class, those that have this kind of debt. Because debt can be, yeah, I mean, can have a, you can buy something with that, and then, but you still have to pay it back over and over again, and then you are like kind of bound to it. And this is for what's the case for the middle class and for the like super rich, they can just use it as a leverage. So that can has, have like different perspectives. And people also didn't understand the riskiness of debt, I think. And so um, this whole, everything was happening now brings to people to question the narratives and not only the financial system, actually everything. And this is how we can, how the people are brought to wake up. And then eventually to like change the system and create something that benefits for all and we create this together. Yeah, but I totally agree with Elizabeth that it needs to be more easy and that we need more um, solutions to, to, to just make it easier. But yeah, I'm confident that we will reach that because we have so many super intelligent people working on that. So that's great. Yeah. Yeah, and we've been on a steady course uh, making Bitcoin easier and easier. It's only been 11 years. You know, if you stop and think about it, it's really not that long. Uh, and the progress that we've made just in the past few is, is quite amazing. Jan, um, I want to ask you, you know, I, I think I know the answer here, but I'm going to tee you up. Uh, what, is, what do you think is the best way to, um, you know, kind of wake people up and bring, on, uh, bring in new Bitcoiners? I apologize. I have crazy amounts of landscaping back there. But you might hear that on the mic. Um, you know, I think we all have a responsibility to our own local communities in terms of education. And I love what Stephanie and Elizabeth are doing on that front. Um, I think you don't have to be a trained educator to tell people about Bitcoin. Um, everybody has to find their own pitch that makes sense for their own group of people. Um, as an example, my, my closest circle of friends is all Russian immigrants. They all went through the same experience as I did, so I have that angle on them. Everybody has their own angle, whether it be as a financial advisor, as an economics uh, professor, or, or anything else. 
um, I think we all have to find that pitch that resonates with people and uh, promote Bitcoin with uh, ed good educational materials. You know, keeping in mind that most of us have fallen down this rabbit hole and have spent a lot of time developing a very, you know, extensive knowledge base, but we can't expect to dump all that knowledge on people on day one. It's a very, it's a lot to process. And it's true that Bitcoin is not user-friendly. I think, um, you know, I agree with Elizabeth. We need to be building better products, better interfaces. And it, it will take 10 years, maybe, to get there, right? Uh, we are very early. And um, when we get there, we'll have more adoption. That's not a problem. But for now, education is, is going to be paramount. Um, you know, figure out short ways of, of explaining it. Uh, I've given talks to high school students, um, which have been very effective. And it turns out that people don't know the first thing about money. And I think this is, you know, before you can explain Bitcoin, you have to really explain money to them and uh, understand scarcity, why scarcity is important. Why, why, uh, why don't we use grass as money, right? I mean, it grows everywhere. That would be great, right? People have an intuitive understanding of these things. Sometimes they need to be reminded that even though we live in a complex society that has layered tons and tons of stuff on top of this basic concept, money really doesn't work if it's not scarce. And so we need to go back to that idea that money is a measuring stick for value. And if that measuring stick is a rubber band, it's absolutely useless. So, you know, reiterate those concepts and get people really on board with that before even trying to drop the Bitcoin knowledge bomb on them. <laughs> yeah, Jan, I was teeing you up to, to be able to say Swan Bitcoin and, and, and start and start. I'm not going to show my own service. <laughs> I, I mean, come on, man. I, well, I right, will. SwanBitcoin.com. <laughs> we actually, have a, we actually have, do have an awesome blog out there, SwanBitcoin.com slash signal, where we do try to put out uh, great educational content, um, such as this podcast uh, slash live stream. Um, I also have my own book. Uh, again, I hate showing my own stuff, but Inventing Bitcoin <laughs> <laughs> just came out on uh, audiobook. So you can pick it up on Audible if you've been too lazy. Uh, it's a very short read. It's probably a three-hour listen. Um, so go ahead and pick it up on Audible today. If you want to, listeners of this show, please DM me on Twitter. Uh, SKWP is my handle and I will give you a free promo code. You can download the book for free. All you got to do is DM SKWP and a free copy of Inventing Bitcoin for you. Man, I bought mine last night. I wish I would have known Sorry. about that. Sorry, Brady. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, Jan is a humble, humble builder and, and author. Um, so I guess that's uh, like Corey and I, our job is to shill, shill swan. Um, so I, I have no compunction against that, but I will save it for the very end of the episode. I want to, I want to know if Stephanie and Elizabeth have uh, any closing thoughts. Stephanie? Well, maybe I would like to uh, go back and think, why, why are we into this whole situation? We are in this situation because we are not self-sovereign on our financial, um, on our assets, on, on our money, actually, because we put the money into custody and this is how this whole first we had like gold and then we had the Bretton Woods system all this gold was like kind of like bundled at the Fed and we had the central custody provider and we shall not have this again so Bitcoin is an alternative because here we do not need uh, a custody provider not even to like send uh, things over distance so if you want to pay over distance uh, for gold, you either need to ship the gold or you need a custody provider. And gold uh, and Bitcoin here really makes a difference. So this means hold your keys um, because this is the value of Bitcoin. Um, if you consider to put a portion of your Bitcoins into custody, then make sure to take care in selecting the custody provider. You should um, select one where you have your own address 
So you can always check whether your Bitcoin are still there. And so you can uh, prevent that they kind of give out or act as if they had more Bitcoin than they really are when you can check it. This is also the magic of Bitcoin that you can check it over this like um, um, decentralized layer and you don't have this with gold where you have to trust the custody provider. So here's also um, Bitcoin is much better in terms of custody. But yeah, essentially think on how did we get into this uh, whole problem by not being self-sovereign, by giving away our freedom, our rights. So just maybe also think beyond Bitcoin. Um, think what is really important for you. Think um, how far would you go to like stand in for your freedom and question everything that you are told from everyone and do your research. That's it Awesome. Thank you, Stephanie, so much. Thank you for being here and for your time. Uh, Elizabeth, closing thoughts for you? I'll share, I'll share a, a nightmare I had, and it's a nightmare, so it's not, the, my, it's not my real view of the market. But last week, I woke up uh, with the thought that the, the financial system, uh, the legacy financial system had collapsed overnight. I, I, I had that thought, like, like massive system failure, left field. I woke up. Well, wait, I, I, wait, didn't that actually happen, though? <laughs> Well, I, w I went to bed. I went to bed. I read something I should have read. I slept on it. And then I woke up thinking about that. And I said, there's not enough people with Bitcoin because there's what there's in that nightmare. There was nothing else working like in, in the in the aftermath, like if in the, in the car. So I said, might as well have that option. Right. Which which I'm I'm, I'm not making the prediction of that. But I, I had that thought and it profoundly scared me because it's not not entirely impossible like it i don't think it's a zero possibility uh but it, it was a, it was a nightmare so i uh, uh and i felt that there was not enough uh, people uh with the ability the, the the readily ability to uh to to trade bitcoin that said for more regular non-nightmarish content you may uh, go on my on my website at octonomics octonomics.com I have a weekly newsletter and or my Twitter Twitter handle is at eprefon. E-P-R-E-F-O-N. Thank you. Thank you so thank you so much, Elizabeth. Oh go ahead, Jan. Uh, no, I just wanted to say that um, I agree with you. Not enough people have Bitcoin. And the best time to buy Bitcoin is, you know, at least 10 years in advance of your country's financial system failing. Uh, that would be the ideal time to start accumulating Bitcoin because by the time the financial system has failed, if you're trying to rush out and buy Bitcoin, uh, you know, and you've got capital controls and you've got government crackdowns and what else, whatever else, it's, it's too late. So because you have to buy Bitcoin in advance and you don't know when that problem is coming, you obviously should be buying it today. So go out and buy some today so you don't end up in Elizabeth's nightmare. Please. Or just, <laughs> or just preserve well for our being able to use, to, use, to use the system, right? To be able to use that, use that database and... To, to sustain it like it is it is a scarce it is a scarce uh, block space right it is a scarce information space it's memory and it's Bitcoin is also a view it like a clock a global global value yardstick so there's there's more to it and I find this topic profoundly uh, interesting and I'm grateful it exists because uh, short short of that uh, it'd be like it's Yep. Hope, 
Bitcoin is hope. Bitcoin is hope. That is beautiful. The moral of the story, Bitcoin is hope. Buy Bitcoin, stack some sats. And here comes the shill. Swan, Bitcoin is the best way to stack those sats, right? Timing the market is hard. We help you do that with or avoid that problem with weekly, monthly, uh, automatic savings. You can steadily convert your fiat into Bitcoin. Just link your bank account, um, buy, you know, set the frequency you want to buy at. And then Bitcoin's automatically delivered into your wallet or your custodial service. So we are committed to kind of being your partner as a Bitcoiner in helping onboard your family and friends. We want to make Bitcoin a very reliable service uh, to recommend to your friends and family. We're Bitcoin only, focused on dollar cost averaging. Uh, we encourage and help uh, your friends and family hold their own keys, make it easy for them to learn at their own pace. So swanbitcoin.com, check us out. Thanks for being here today to Stephanie and Elizabeth. Thanks, Jan. Uh, this has been a great episode of Swan Signal, and uh, I think it'll be very well received. Thanks to Elizabeth and Stephanie for joining us. Follow Elizabeth at eprefon, at E-P-R-E-F-O-N, and follow Stephanie at, at Stephanie V. Jan. That's at S-T-E-F-A-N-I-E-V-J-A-N on Bitcoin Twitter. On behalf of the SWAN team, thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed the episode of the SWAN Signal podcast. Join us live next time on Twitter. Follow us at SWAN Bitcoin, and you can jump into our SWAN Signal Telegram chat room. We have a lively crew in there that chat during our conversation uh, and all through the the rest of the week. Uh, You can ask questions of our guests uh, live uh, while you're in the chat room and while the broadcast is happening. That's a lot of fun. You can find the chat at t.me slash SWAN Signal. SWAN Signal is a production of SWAN Bitcoin at swanbitcoin.com. The best way to buy Bitcoin. We have the easiest setup of automatic buys, otherwise known as dollar cost averaging to a lot of Bitcoiners. We're focused on stacking sats, not trading. There's no distractions from altcoins. We are forever Bitcoin only. We are building automatic withdrawals right now. So we have all three stages. One, we pull the funds from your bank automatically. We turn those funds into Bitcoin and you can set up automatic withdrawals. Three-stage process, set it and forget it. We are also committed to Bitcoin education. Follow us on Twitter, as I said, at SwanBitcoin. Subscribe to the podcast at swansignalpodcast.com. That's it for this week. Thanks so much for joining us.